Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is produced by PolicyForum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate school. You can find out more about the fabulous degree programs and short courses that we offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Now, you, like me, are probably spending a lot of time at home at the moment. Today, rather than recording from our pod cupboard at the Crawford School, where we normally are, I'm under a blanket held up by two clothes horses in my daughter's bedroom, trying to get good enough sound quality for this podcast. And I suspect that our listeners are doing all sorts of odd things at the moment, to continue their work, to continue their social life, and to maintain their sanity. So, listeners, please let us know what you're up to. Connect with us via our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, and tell us what you're doing at the moment, what's happening in your lives while you're staying in, and tell us how you're staying healthy and how you're staying happy. And, of course, connecting with us via that Facebook book is one way of staying happy. Today's episode of Policy Forum Pod will again come to you in two parts. And we've got two really important topics to talk through today and two absolutely outstanding guests to help us think about these issues. Coming up later, we'll be looking at the impact of staying indoors during the COVID-19 pandemic on people who are living in abusive relationships. And this is a really pressing issue that as a society, we need to think through and we need to address. But before we get to that, we want to focus on the measures that governments are putting in place in Australia to limit the spread of COVID-19 and whether they're fit for purpose. Many different restrictions are now in place across Australia's states and territories, with some of the harshest measures found in New South Wales and Victoria, where there are also the highest number of infections. For example, in New South Wales, people not complying with the rules can get a hefty fine of up to $1,100, or even a jail sentence of several months. We've also seen recent media discussions as young people going out for a drive with their parents have been fined. So some really strict regulations in place. While countries that have been slow to act or have done too little have suffered greatly, have the new measures that we have here in Australia gone too far? Many of these restrictions came at a time when the country had already reached its peak in terms of the number of cases on March 25th. And since then, the number of new infections has been falling. So in the first past of the pod, we're asking, have federal and state governments across the country got the balance right with the current measures that are in place? To pick over this question, we've invited Professor Peter Collignon AM into our virtual studio today. 
Peter is an infectious disease physician and a microbiologist at Canberra Hospital. He is executive director of ACT Pathology and a professor right here at the ANU School of Medicine. Hello, Peter. It's so great to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me. So, Peter, I think everyone would agree that it's great to hear that the number of new infections are falling across Australia, and I think this is a relief to everyone. Does this mean that the measures put in place by governments in Australia were justified? I think it does show they were justified, particularly what was done in March, from mid-March to about the 25th of March. Um, The epidemic curve, everybody was trying to flatten it, but we've done better than flattening it. We've actually made it go down uh, to lower numbers. Now, a lot of that is because what we did with return travellers and quarantine of of return travellers and a lot of the things we put in place before, such as closing pubs, clubs, uh, limiting how many people can be in crowds, et cetera, et cetera. But particularly, everybody, I think, realising that their hands are so important in spreading this infection and washing their hands using alcohol hand rub, but also the social distancing of trying to keep as much as possible two metres away from everyone else, because this is mainly spread by either getting on our hands and self-inoculating ourselves or others, or by droplets, which means if we cough or sneeze or even, you know, um, have some saliva that might even go from our mouth, those all drop within a two metre radius. And therefore, by keeping our distance, we limit getting it directly. And by looking after our hands and cleaning surfaces better, we minimise the chance we'll pick it up on our hands and self-inoculate ourselves through either our eye, our nose or our mouth. And Peter, given that we are seeing that, that number of new infections falling, do we take this as a sign that things might go back to normal earlier than we first thought? No, I don't. Well, I don't think things are going to go back to normal for quite a while. I mean, this virus is here. I would doubt that we're going to get rid of it. No country has done that anywhere as far as I can see. We're going to have low levels around and our most critical period is our upcoming winter. So I think we're going to have to change practices for at least six months and maybe two years because it's all dependent on getting a safe and effective vaccine. And that's really a long way off. So a lot of the things we do, we're going to have to do differently. Now, my own view is that what some of the state governments have done currently, I think, is more than we need to do. Um, because I don't think it's sustainable. And on some of them, I don't even think are biologically plausible. But the overall things that have done, particularly federally, and by most of the states and territories, has had an impact. But we're going to have to continue that. And we're going to have to do it with a way that is sustainable um, so that we not only save lives, but I think we save people's sanity and livelihoods as well. Yes, there is a, a delicate balance to be achieved here. And and Peter, you've written um, in a number of places recently commenting on some of the, the quite harsh fines that have been put in place for people who do not comply with social distancing rules. And we've seen particularly New South Wales and Victoria taking quite a, a rigid approach. Uh, you, you commented just a moment ago on some of the measures perhaps not being appropriate or sustainable. What is your assessment of some of the harsher approaches that we're seeing, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria? I can quite see why New South Wales and Victoria have done this, because we saw crowds of people at Bondi Beach, you know, cheek to jail, so to speak, on the beach. And also, you know, we hear stories of people getting over the, you know, the bars being closed by having parties at home. Well, that's entirely inappropriate. You know, the more people you're in contact with, and particularly closely, the more this virus has got the potential to spread. 
And while the most danger is for people over the age of 70 and really over the age of 50, if you've got any underlying heart condition, et cetera, it's not that 20 and 30 year olds don't get this. In fact, they've had more infections um, than anybody else as a group in Australia and they pass it on to others. But also equally important, even if this has a low mortality rate in 20 and 30 year olds, say, let's say 0.1% or less, if 100,000 people get infected, that's 100 deaths. And even if it's tenfold lower than that, still for 100,000 people, that's 10 deaths. And a lot of that is avoidable if we just do the things that work. The problem I have with the New South Wales and Victorian ones, I think some of this was, well, if we lock down, we'll stop all the spread and the virus will disappear. Well, I think that's very unlikely. And I think the other problem is we're responding to what we see on television that's disastrous in New York, in Italy, in London, where they've had uncontrolled community spread for two months, is my belief, since at least January, with huge numbers in the community relatively having it, and then seeing the, the, the deaths that result from that um, as a percentage of people infected. Now, Australia has not had uncontrolled community spread. It may be because we were lucky, because when all the people were moving out of Wuhan on holidays and going other places, uh, because of our bushfires, they were avoiding Australia uh, because of the bad publicity. But I think the other reason is all respiratory viruses spread less in summer. Winter is the peak time they all spread. And guess what? That's what actually Europe and North America uh, is. Now, so, uh, you know, I think we have been lucky. I don't think there's any evidence that we've got much community spread at all. In Canberra, for instance, we may, in a population of, you know, close to half a million, had maybe one or two cases we'd identified. Now, the argument is, oh, we're missing them because we're not doing enough testing. Well, Australia is doing more testing than just about every other country in the world per capita. We've even done more than South Korea. And this is evidenced in our low positivity rate. But also, we're not seeing people coming from the community with pneumonia into our ICUs, into our hospitals, because we're testing them all now for this, who've got COVID which actually means if there, there is undoubtedly some spread in the community, but still at low levels and at a level that everybody else in the world would be really happy with. So therefore, when we do things like if you go outside and sit on a park bench, you're a pregnant lady, for instance, and you get fined, I think, what is the point of that? Um, how are you going to give that infection to anyone else or how are you going to get it? If you're taking your daughter for a driving lesson in Victoria, where she lives in the same house anyway, and you get a fine because you're in the car, how is that a risk to anybody or an increased risk to those people? So we've got to be careful that we do things that actually make sure we keep our social distancing up. If crowds get together on beaches, um, that is inappropriate, and that's what we need to police. But we also need to be careful we don't overdo it, because we're going to have to do this for six months. And we've got to have everybody on side or the vast majority on side believing this is good policy. This makes sense. Not only will it protect me, but it will protect everyone else. And if we overdo this, um, and particularly when we say, look, you know, in, in my understanding of Victoria, you're not even allowed to have anybody visit you um, under uh, except in some other circumstances. That is not sustainable for six months because we're going to have to do whatever we do till the at least September, October. And given we've got a low rate of transmission now in the community, I think, well, what is our endpoint? I thought our endpoint with flattening the curve was to keep the levels low so that we could cope with our health system, but minimise the risk to everybody else from both livelihoods as well as infections, so that it is at a manageable level um, until we get a vaccine. So, you know, if locking everybody up when we don't have, in effect, the what's happening in, in Europe, and I don't think we'll get there, 
um, I think is inappropriate, overkill, and we will run the risk we won't keep everybody on side. So, Peter, what what specific recommendations would you give to governments to adjust their measures so that we do get that balance right? Well, I think, first of all, we've got to actually see what our game, our end game is. I think if people think the end game is to eliminate this from Australia, well, I'd be happy if I'm wrong, but I think that's not realistic. And it's not realistic, it's not going to get reintroduced all the time again either. Uh, because we'll invariably have contact with outside places, but more invariably there'll be small numbers around that we haven't found. So I think we've got to say, look, this level of community transmission, uh, you know, whatever rate that is, this is what we find um, acceptable is the wrong term, but what we can live with, because this actually means we've done a lot of uh, social isolation. We're actually going to keep a lot of businesses closed, in my view, at least till October, you know, cub, clubs and cubs. And I'm not sure how sport sport's going to get back on the agenda for a while either with crowds. But let's do it at a level that minimises transmission, makes the low, risk as low as possible, but without all becoming hermits for six months, which will be impossible to sustain. Now, this is difficult and we've got to be uh, able to adjust what we do, depending particularly the data we get back from, say, China, the US, uh, Europe, and particularly how much spread has there really been. I mean, I'm still not quite sure why we haven't got more data from China about in Wuhan, for instance. Well, we know we had this many cases and deaths, but how many people really got infected when we measure your antibody levels and see, you know, was there one person infected for every 10 we didn't find or is it only one in two, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've got a pretty good idea what the age group profile is for, for death. That's pretty accurate. We also know that children under the age of 15 very rarely get this infection and even more rarely have serious consequences. Not that they can't, so it's another reason we have to do the spread, but that's an issue for schools, for instance. Um, schools, if people are below the age of 15, appears to be low risk for not only the children coming to harm, but spreading this. This is quite different from influenza and therefore the modelling for influenza is inappropriate because children are such a big factor in influenza. But the other thing is that then we need to say, well, who's most at risk? Like if we, if, for instance, we keep schools open, I don't think anybody over the age of 70, be a cleaner, a headmaster or anything else, should be at school. They should work from home or from an enclosed office. And in fact, probably anybody over the age of 50 with any underlying uh, medical condition shouldn't be there either. So we need to do risk um, for the individuals and the different groups and have different approaches depending what your risk is. And I think that also means our approach in Bondi at the moment might be quite different to what we do in a place even like Canberra, where there's been minimal transmission of this infection with what we've done so far, even though we've had close to 100 people with the infection in our community. Perversely, the Ruby Princess is such a disaster, you know, six, 700 people infected, putting them into the community. But the good news from that, perversely, is only 20 people um associated not on the cruise ship have got infection. What that means is what we are doing is stopping the infection from spreading. When we have a real problem is when we, this factor called R naught of one, if it's more than one, you're in trouble. If it's less than one, um, things are not rosy, but they're looking much better. And we've done that with the epidemic curve so far in, in Australia. But from the perspective of that, if 10 people give it to 15 people, give it to 18 people, you have got a problem. And that's actually what happened in the US and in Europe. But if 10 people only give it to five people who only give it to two people, well, if you're one of that five or two, well, that's not good for you. But from a community public health point of view, that actually means we're getting the infection under control, not eliminating it, 
but keeping it at low levels that are manageable, providing we maintain it so that one person does not give it to more than one person uh, and we start from a low level, which we are at now. So it seems as though an evidence-based risk assessment within context is the way we need to be progressing in terms of, of our responses. And Peter, you also mentioned that Australia has very high testing rate and the importance of testing. Where does testing fit into all of this? Well, I think testing is essential and we need to do more and more, both so we know what's going on, but so that when any new infection comes, we get onto it quickly with our very good uh, public health officials and the great, you know, people that have been following up these people so far because it's been very effective uh, and we need to continue that. So in come our winter in particular, we need to be actually sampling a large proportion of people who have just sniffles and colds, etc. We probably can't do all of them, but we need to do a reasonable sample so we know what's happening in the community so that if we find there's pockets of infection somewhere, we can go and do what we've done very successfully for return travellers and make sure that we minimise the spread and make sure that one person is not spreading it to more than one person on a population basis. That means more testing. There's other things we can do potentially as well, um, you know, looking at um, other things such as, for instance, sampling sewage um, from all the communities because in Holland they did that and they found they found the virus there well before they started seeing increasing cases. So there's lots of things that still require research, but what we need to know is what is the real risk in the community? And the only way we know to know that is to do adequate testing. The other testing we need to do is antibody testing when it becomes available, but that doesn't pre-warn us. That tells us after the event how bad it was. It's still useful because in defined populations, be it children, be it people from the cruise ship, whatever, we can say, well, we identified, you know, 10 people out of 100 had the infection, but, oh, look, there was another 20 we missed. Now, that's important. They are also able to spread this infection, probably much less than people with symptoms, but we need to know that, know that information, and currently we don't because it's not available anywhere. But once we know that, and I think we will over the next two months, we will be in a better position to better manage how we're going to handle winter because that's our biggest next risk um, period coming up. So, Peter, in terms of projecting over the next like, kind of two to six months, do you see the, the kinds of social isolation rules that are in place, people staying in their homes as much as possible and not socialising uh, beyond what's, what's necessary, as, as being needed to be in place over the next sort of two to six months until we move towards a vaccine? Well, I think, well, the vaccine will even be longer than that, but I think winter is the period that worries me. And I think what we need to do is have things in place that people believe will work, they can see it working, but that doesn't absolutely, you know, ruin their ability to do everything. And in a lot of ways, I think um, what South Australia, at least I understand, is doing is more appropriate. They're recommending that you, you know, keep, you know, minimise the amount of people you associate with. They let two people come to your home. If you want to minimise people coming to your home and contact, it's, you know, limit the numbers but have lunch outside with sandwiches you bring yourself. There's lots of things, and keep you two metres distance. So there's lots of things you can do if you've got the ability to minimise your risk for yourself and to others, but still able to function. Um, you know, in all our stores, I think they've been very good so far, at least the ones I've been at. You know, they've got markers on the floor, keep your two metres away from other, other people. Um, if there's crowds, they have security guards to keep crowd control. So there's lots of things we can do 
to minimise the risk. I mean, restaurants, um, well, they'll have to look at that. But I would think you know, if you open any restaurants, it'll be outside dining in the middle of the day in the sunshine with, you know, well separated from others and very small groups. I think pubs and clothes are closed for the, you know, at least until September or October, um, until we have more information. Because the problem we've got is we really won't know where this is going until the Northern Hemisphere goes through another winter because that's where most of the infection is. And then we'll know, well, how bad will this come back with, when you go through two winters? Our winter will be a test, but it really won't answer the question for the rest of the world, I suspect. But I do think we can keep the numbers down if we keep on doing most of the things we were doing towards the end of March, which is quarantining of high-risk people, you know, contacts of those, keeping people with infection quarantined as well until we believe they're non-infectious, not having any large gatherings. But that doesn't mean we've all got to become hermits for the next six months. Finally, Peter, we heard the news on Tuesday that Australia is going to be giving anti-malarial drugs to patients with COVID-19. So hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, um, this is somewhat controversial. Is Australia right to be stockpiling and using these drugs? And will they help people who are suffering from coronavirus? Well, I really worry about this because I think it's panic causing doctors to make wrong decisions as well as politicians in the community. There's been one or two studies that suggest it's a benefit, but there's equally others that show no benefit that are better than the original studies. I personally can't see why would you expect a drug for malaria to have a, an effect against a virus that's completely different. And there's lots of other drugs uh, as well. Now, I actually think we need to study these, but we need to do it in an appropriate research context where we can answer the question. These drugs have side effects. They kill people by themselves from heart problems, etc., etc. We need to know what we do is actually going to work and we do more good than harm. And we won't do that if we give it to people just because they're sick, because somebody thought it was a good idea in France, you know, a couple of months ago, or that, you know, the president of the US tweeted it. We need science to answer this question. And already we are seeing in China, for instance, and from other places, that we give steroids, for instance, um, corticosteroids to people with bad infections because it, their lungs leak and it's thought it, it improves that. But the some of the initial data suggests that if that happened to you, you are more likely to die from other complications from you know that steroids contribute to. So we need to be very careful with this. If we learn from 1918, 1919, um, salicylates, aspirin, were freely available for the first time in the US. So huge doses were given to people when they had the Spanish flu because, hey, they had a fever, this must be a good idea. At the end of the day, it probably killed more people than it saved because people had more bleeding as a complication of the aspirin. So we need to be very careful that if we're going to give drugs that are experimental, which these are, that we do the appropriate studies in reasonable numbers of people first before we think about giving it to thousands or hundreds of thousands. And the other problem with this is chloroquine and those derivatives, yes, they're mainly used for malaria, where they save a lot of lives, particularly in developing countries. By taking their stock, we're probably going to let more people die from malaria that don't need to, with a very, drug of, at the moment, in my view, dubious benefit. In addition, in Australia even, these drugs have a benefit for people with rheumatoid arthritis, SLE and some autoimmune diseases. What happened in Australia, because some doctors were panicking and taking all the stocks for themselves, people who with those conditions couldn't get them anymore. So panic affects everybody, um, you know, the community, doctors, nurses, everybody else. We need to be careful that we make decisions based on data and true risk assessment 
and don't go overboard without precautions based on panic. And that is happening too much, not only in the community, and I think with some of the political responses, but with doctors as well in what we're doing with some patients. Pedro, I think that's an incredibly important and powerful message for us to finish on. Thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you for the work that you're doing and good luck with that work over the coming months. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Listeners, please stick around. We'll take a quick break here and we'll return in just a moment to talk about how policymakers could and should be responding to the very troubling surges in domestic violence during the COVID-19 outbreak. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Domestic violence is one of the most serious issues facing many societies. The statistics in Australia are damning. On average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. One in six women experience abuse before the age of 15. And the Australian police deal with domestic violence as often as every two minutes, according to data compiled by White Ribbon. The coronavirus means that everyone is forced to spend much more time at home, a serious risk for those living in abusive relationships who now have nowhere to escape. Across Australia and around the world, organisations are reporting a surge in the number of people seeking support services or doing internet searches on domestic violence help. And so in the second part of this podcast, we want to ask how does COVID-19 affect victims of domestic violence in Australia and what can policymakers do to tackle the issue? To discuss this, I now have with me Dr Bianca Calabria. Bianca is a research fellow at the ANU School of Population Health. She also works as a psychologist with people who have experienced trauma, particularly survivors of domestic violence. Bianca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me today, Sharon. Bianca, could we begin by just briefly hearing about why we're seeing this increase in domestic violence and who is particularly at risk? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, look, the COVID-19 pandemic and the restrictions that have come from it have really changed the way that we're living our lives, like right now, but also into the future. Um, And we've got uh, perceived risk to our health across multiple contexts and also increased uncertainty about what this means for us. Now, these changes in lifestyle and this lack of uncertainty, they're really likely to have significant impacts, negative impacts on people's mental health and well-being. Um, And we're likely to see increases in coping behaviours like alcohol and other drug use. Now, both of these are risk factors for family violence. That's what we know from the research we have today. 
and other risk factors for family family violence are also more prevalent at this time. So um, the loss of many jobs and the financial challenges that the majority of people are, are experiencing at this time increases stress, and this can precipitate and also perpetuate violence. There's also, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, a need for everyone to be at home all of the time, and this can be very stressful, and it can in it can fuel interpersonal conflict. Um, this can be because of proximity, but also because people aren't able to do the things they normally do to maintain their well-being, like socially connect with other people um, and get out and about in the world. So we've got a lot of risk factors um, coming up um, as that are a result of um, the COVID-19 pandemic and restrictions. And it's not to say that all homes will have violence in them, um, but as you said, we are seeing in, a, in the data um, increased, there appears to be increased family violence um, at this time. Bianca, we, we know that domestic violence normally impacts most on women and children. Are there particular issues facing women and facing children as separate groups in the context of COVID-19 that we should be aware of? Um, we often talk about domestic violence as, you know, as a whole, um, but of course there are different groups who, who experience those traumas. Do we need to think about women and children differently in this context? I think what's really important um, in your question there is to highlight the influence of trauma. Uh, and women and children um, can experience family violence um, differently. Uh, children who witness family violence, um, uh, children can also experience family violence, um, and we need to have appropriate responses um, and services for both groups. What we know um, from the research about people who experience trauma is that their, their bodies remember what's happened. And what I mean by that is they, um, they have a learned or um, a rewired response in their bodies um, that picks up on threat more, more easily and more frequently. Um, and this is what uh, we're likely to see during the COVID um, restrictions and response. What I mean by that is there is threat um, shown to us in the media, talked about uh, between anyone you speak to all the time about our health, and that might be elevating people's sort of threat responses generally. We might also be seeing this in perpetrators because we also know that perpetrators um, often are survivors of um, trauma themselves, and this may be influencing um, how people are interacting with each other. This means that we do need responses for for women and children um, and for perpetrators that um, are about addressing and supporting trauma as well as working through the challenges of the COVID uh, pandemic and restrictions. Bianca, at the beginning of March this year, the government committed some $328 million to combat domestic violence. And this money is supposed to be going towards frontline services, training, uh, counselling hotlines and emergency accommodation. What's your opinion of that package? But also, how does that package need perhaps to be rethought in the context of COVID-19? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and one that is challenging to 
answer without research in this area which is emerging but what I do believe is that what we need is an approach that has flexibility within the provision of services so we need to have absolutely telehealth and phone services available to people but we also need to be aware that if someone is living and um, isolated in a home with somebody who's perpetrating family violence, then then they may have a need to get out and have a face-to-face session or they may need or want to be able to escape that situation and see a counsellor face-to-face if it's safe um, to do so for the counsellor and for, for the, the person seeking treatment. Um, I think as well trauma and violence Uh, It's important to have these helplines, but it's also important to have specialist services with people trained to address uh, trauma. So accreditation packages and training are always welcome. What I think is also really important is that the um, mental health care plan Better Access Program uh, considers extending the number of sessions available to clients, particularly those who have experienced trauma or violence. Um, And this is because we're now not only working um, with clients and people on their mental health challenges and their wellbeing, but also particular context-specific stresses and challenges because of COVID-19. And that requires additional time and additional sessions. These uh, approaches, it's really important that we are addressing the trauma, but we're also helping uh, people to uh, support their wellbeing um, within these restrictions, um, and that also takes time. Bianca, as you mentioned just then, telehealth is one response that the government has endorsed um, in the context of COVID-19. Um, to respond to physical and mental health issues. Uh, You also said that um, people who are experiencing domestic violence may need to to get out um, and to speak to someone face-to-face, but presumably may also need to just use that as an opportunity to be able to leave the home um, where they're experiencing violence. What's your view on how policy can facilitate that opportunity for people to leave the home in the context of domestic violence when people are being told that they need to be in lockdown. It seems that that places uh, people who are experiencing violence in the home in a real dilemma um, because leaving the home may become a dangerous act in itself. So how do we kind of balance all of these really difficult issues um, in this context we find ourselves in? It is really difficult and it's really complex and that's why I think flexibility is the key. There's not going to be one sort of way forward in this. Um, it is also really tricky because I think clinicians and practitioners also need to be protecting themselves from COVID-19 and some are um, vulnerable uh, people themselves to the virus or have, live with a vulnerable family member and in those cases they, they'll need to only provide telehealth services. But for those practitioners who are able to provide face-to-face services, I think it is really important that they're still available. I think that mental health care is, um, in my opinion, an essential service in this time. We're seeing that um, just anecdotally increases in anxiety and um, and all kinds of stress uh, and a need for people to support their well-being and mental health services are really essential um, to do that for people. Bianca, you also mentioned the need for, for research and for evidence-based responses. Um, 
And of course, there is so much around life in the context of COVID-19 that we're really not sure about. If you could prioritise the kinds of issues that we need research on most urgently, the things that we really need to know about in relation to domestic violence, what would you prioritise at the moment in terms of the research that will help us respond? Yeah, that's a great question, Sharon, because I think um, as a researcher, there are always many, many questions that I would like answered. Um, and so, but I think what's really important is to um, explore and understand the how and if uh, family violence has uh, is has changed in the context of COVID-19 um, and whether there are other people who are at risk um, of uh, perpetration or experiencing family violence um, in this context. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, are we seeing increased numbers of calls from people who um, are already um, experiencing family violence and that that, that has um, increased uh, in severity in this time? Or are we seeing new cases of people um, experiencing family violence um, and what's contributing to that? Uh, I also think what's really key uh, is not just understanding it, but also looking at what we can do to help. Uh, we don't just want to understand it, but we want to look at the services that are helpful. Uh, and I think the best place to start with that is asking people uh, who are experiencing family violence what services they want and how we can make them available. Bianca, one of the things that has been reported in some states across Australia um, are restrictions as part of the lockdown on children's uh, visits to their non-custodian parent where uh, there's custody across two parents. We're also seeing some challenges um, within the out-of-home care system around children being able to visit uh, birth parents or birth families. Um, and of course, while this is not um, directly related to domestic violence, many children in those situations have experienced either directly or have witnessed um, domestic violence, and those children are already very vulnerable. How do you think, in terms of reducing the trauma to children, we need to think about those children who are um, either in the child protection system or where custody is split across parents and um, how we should be facilitating children's connections with parents in this context? Yeah, it's really important that we're supporting children's wellbeing through all of this as well. Um, it's a lot for our little people to handle during this time. Um, and there are restrictions that we that are in place that we need to abide by. I think it's really important that people are connecting any way they can through things like video calls um, and phone calls and making sure that children have access to that as well and are supported to do that when appropriate. Um, I think we're going to have to have um, a really good think about how we can support children once we're coming out of these COVID restrictions um, so that they are able to understand and learn uh, to be in the world again because for especially the younger ones, there's, there's a large chunk of their life where they haven't been able to socially connect uh, in the way that we usually do. Uh, it's going to be important to support them to do that um, while also keeping them safe, as you said. Based on, on your experience, both as a researcher and as a, as a practicing psychologist, what would you like to see policymakers doing to improve the systems that are in place or that should be in place 
to support those who are experiencing domestic violence, but to deal with these rising numbers that we're seeing at the moment in the context of of COVID-19 with increasing numbers of of women seeking help? Look, it's really important that um, there uh, is a flexible uh, and broad approach to supporting people through this uh, and that it's funded appropriately so that training can be provided to practitioners I think it's important to, um, uh, when appropriate, ask people who've experienced family violence what services they need and that those services are then informed by evidence. We need trauma-informed approaches. Um, we need approaches that are that support people who've experienced violence, that support the children who've witnessed the violence and also to support the perpetrators and what what we what we often hear from families is they would like family based approaches. Um, currently, uh, the uh, mental health care plans, the Better Access Service, um, doesn't allow for family therapy with a psychologist or a mental uh, health practitioner. Is my understanding, um, and so being able to extend um, supports, um, financial supports for people to allow them to gain uh, family therapy when required, I think would also be helpful, as well as extending the number of sessions available so it can really work on these complex issues in 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 the way that is required. And Bianca, would those family-based um, approaches work um, through a telehealth approach? Is that something that should be particularly explored given that in a context of isolation, families are necessarily living together, but perhaps that need for therapy becomes even greater? Look, that is a really good question. We're still um, exploring um, the impact of telehealth on therapy and the therapeutic process. Um, look, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think that it needs to be done in a delicate manner and in a way that works for each family on a on a case-by-case basis and, and the practitioner, of course, to make sure that everyone is safe um, physically uh, during this time of COVID-19, uh, but that we're also able to support unique needs um, for mental health and wellbeing also. And Bianca, you, you mentioned in relation to children the need to think about how children are supported once we come out of this situation that we're currently in. In relation to women particularly who ex- are experiencing domestic violence, you know, the, the immediate need is to keep people safe um, and to respond to, to those urgent needs. But as we come out of this situation, what do you think policy makers need to be most focused on in terms of um, supporting women who have survived domestic violence during this period of lockdown and are then trying to pick their lives up again as the world opens up? Yeah, look, um, I think at the moment there is understandably a focus on, on physical health and keeping people safe and alive from COVID-19. Um, and as that um, is controlled and things um improve in that sense I think what will remain um, for some time in my opinion is the impact on people's mental health and well-being and so I think what is really important is that um, and particularly for people who are experiencing um, family and domestic violence is that the services are available that they are allowed um, to um, access these in uh, with the greater need uh, that they are uh, that the telehealth services are possibly continued over a longer period, particularly for um, remote areas that may not have services uh, within their areas. 
Um, this is really, really important. Um, it's a difficult time for everyone and I think it's really important that um, it's communicated that the difficult time for wellbeing might exceed um, the period of when we're in shutdown and isolation uh, and that it's okay to seek support um, and that we have appropriate and available services um, and in the way that people want them. We've spoken a lot about uh, the impacts on women and on children and, of course, that re reflects the statistics um, in terms of who um, are most likely to be victims of domestic violence. I just wanted to, to ask you, in, in your view, at this time when we know that we are seeing some increases in, in women seeking help, we know from um, experiences that are now being reported from countries that are a bit of ahead of Australia in terms of lockdown that domestic violence has increased. How should our political leaders, our community leaders, be messaging these issues to men? What kinds of messages do we need to send out to men who are experiencing you know, enormous stress and, stress and pressure as, as a consequence of COVID-19? But what, what messages need to be directed um, towards men? It's always really important to have messages that are going to really um, connect with who we want them to connect with. It is important, as I said before, sort of to ask, ask men um, sort of what they need. But I also think it's really important not to increase shame during this time. Shame, um, we're finding from research, it can be a real driver for perpetrators of family violence. Uh, and it's important that our messages are supportive of perpetrators, not in the actions that they are performing, but understanding that things are hard um, for everyone across the board right now. Uh, I think it's it's helpful to let them know that they can get help as well uh, and to support them to make changes in their life and for their families. Um, this is, is really important um, that we're not uh, perpetuating this violence through increasing their shame um, or through uh, expecting them to uh, rise to the occasion of addressing this on their own without appropriate support. So, Bianca, be before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, for those women particularly who are experiencing domestic violence and are not sure what help is available, or for those people who know that someone they know or someone they care about is experiencing or likely to experience domestic violence or they're worried about them, where do people go to find out what support is available, to find out what services are available? Where can people start looking for help? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, um, you know, the internet is always a great place to start and and one um, website with excellent information is 1-800-RESPECT. Um, 1800 Respect uh, is a national sexual assault, domestic and family violence counselling service and they also have links to uh, local supports and services. Um, and people who are experiencing violence can call that helpline uh, but also um, family and friends and people around those who are experiencing violence can contact them to find services and support and have some guidance on, on how to best proceed.
And I guess for people who are in situations of, of domestic violence and are deeply fearful for their safety or perhaps their lives, um, when they're doing internet searches, perhaps a practical piece of advice is to just go into that simple function and wipe the memory of, of recent searches so people are not putting themselves at more risk. Absolutely. Um, it is... Um keeping yourself safe at all times, um, reaching out to those around to help you find that information if you're unable to find it for yourself um, and absolutely um, calling on people like the police if required um, to, to make sure that you're safe. And I guess we are hearing messages across our communities at the moment to stay connected, to stay in touch with people. And I, I guess that this is a situation where if you have a friend or a loved one who you're not hearing from, don't give up and retreat. Stay in touch with people at the moment. Stay connected. Keep checking in to make sure people are okay. Absolutely stay in touch. I think everyone is doing it tough in their own way at the moment and it's really easy in isolation to sort of slip away uh, into your own little cave. Um, and so keep connecting, keep reaching out um, and, and stay connected any way you can during these really difficult times. Bianca, thank you so much for talking with us today, um, for sharing your experience and your expertise, um, and thank you for the work that you're doing to, to try to keep people safe during these difficult times. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Please share your thoughts with us or let us know what you think we should cover on Policy Forum Pod. We're always keen to lend you our ears. You can find us on Twitter at apps policy forum or send us an email podcast at policyforum.net and when you're looking to talk directly with our presenters or other listeners then the best place for you to do that is in our facebook community come and join us just type policy forum pod into the search bar and you'll find us right there and a quick reminder that being a member of this group comes with exclusive access to Ask Policy Forum, our new series made especially for you, our listeners, where you can ask any question that you would like. Episode 2 is just out, and we're already on the hunt for your questions again. So don't forget to join us when you're finished listening to this podcast. And please take a minute to subscribe to us. We're on Acast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows from. And please also leave us a quick review and just find that fifth star. It's a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. We know that today's topic has been a serious one and that some of you might be personally affected. If you or someone you know is experiencing violence and is in need of support, please contact one of the support hotlines. We've left them in the notes of this podcast. We'll be back for another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. Until then, stay safe, stay home, and bye-bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.